Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. Our selection this time, The Mystery of the Grip of Death by Jacques Futrell. Read by Perry F. Bruns. Part 2. From the South Boston Tenement House, Hutchinson Hatch went to the undertaking establishment where the body of Fred Boyd lay, made a careful examination of the mark which showed that he had been throttled and then went in a cab to the home of Professor Van Dusen, the thinking machine. As he drove up, he noticed a bright light in the professor's laboratory. It was just fifteen minutes past one o'clock when he ascended the steps. The thinking machine in person answered the doorbell. The leonine head with its shock of yellow hair, the clean-shaven face, and the perpetually squinted eyes behind thick glasses standing out boldly and grotesquely in the light from a nearby ark. "'Who is it?' 
asked the thinking machine. "'Hutchinson Hatch,' said the reporter. "'I saw your light, and I was particularly anxious for a little advice, so I thought—' "'Come in,' said the scientist, and he extended his long, slender fingers cordially. Hatch followed the thin, bowed figure of the scientist, which seemed that of a child, into the laboratory where he was motioned to a seat. Then Hatch told the story of the crime, so far as it was known, while the professor sat squinting steadily at him, his long taper fingers pressed together. "'Did you see the man?' asked the thinking machine. "'Yes. What kind of marks exactly were those on his neck?' "'They seemed to be such marks as would be made by a large rope drawn about the throat. "'Was the skin broken?' "'No, but whoever strangled him must have had tremendous strength,' said the reporter. "'The pressure seemed to have been all around.' "'The thinking machine sat silent for several minutes. "'Door fastened inside with iron bar,' he mused. "'And no transom, so the bar was not placed back in position. "'Both windows fastened inside.' It would have been absolutely impossible for any person to leave that room after Boyd was dead, said the reporter emphatically. Nothing is impossible, Mr. Hatch, said the thinking machine testily. I thought I had demonstrated that clearly once. The worst anything can be is extremely difficult, not impossible. Hatch bowed gravely. He had walked over one of the thinking machine's pet hobbies. Man was undressed went on the thinking machine. Bed disordered, chairs overturned, gas out. He paused a moment, then asked, You reason that the man must have gone to bed after putting out the light, and that his murderer came upon him unawares? That seems to be the only possible thing to imagine, said Hatch. And in that case the other man, Cunningham, would not have been there? Precisely. What sort of a wedding ring was it? Perfectly new. It didn't seem to have ever been worn. The thinking machine arose from his seat and took down a heavy volume, one of hundreds which lined his walls. You don't believe it probable that Cunningham left the room while angry and returned after Boyd was asleep and killed him? asked the thinking machine as he fingered the leaves. He couldn't have come back if that door was fastened, said Hatch doggedly. He could have, of course, said the thinking machine, but it is hardly probable. Do you think it reasonable to suppose, then, that someone hidden in the closet waited until Cunningham was gone and then killed Boyd? That sounds more plausible, said Hatch, after a moment's consideration. But he couldn't have gone out of that room and fastened the door or window behind him. Of course he could have, said the thinking machine irritably. Don't keep saying he couldn't have done anything. It annoys me exceedingly. Properly rebuked, Hatch sat silent while the thinking machine sought something in the book. In the event, of course, that somebody was hidden in the room, it would make it a premeditated murder, wouldn't it? asked the scientist. Yes, unquestionably, replied the reporter. Here is something, said the thinking machine as he squinted into the volume he held. It is logic reduced to figures. Criminologists agree, practically, that thirty and one-third percent of all premeditated crimes are committed because of money, directly or indirectly, that two percent are committed because of insanity, 
and that the others, 67 and two-thirds percent, are committed because of women. Hatch nodded. We'll shut out for the time being the matter of insanity. It is only a remote chance. Money would hardly enter into the case because of the fact that both men were poor. Therefore there remains a woman. The wedding ring found in the room also indicates a woman, though in what connection is not clear. Now, Mr. Hatch, he continued, glaring at the reporter almost fiercely, find out all you can about the private life of this man Boyd. It will probably be like every other man of his class, and particularly his love affairs. Find out also all you can about Cunningham and his love affairs. If the name of any woman appears in the case at all, find out all about her and her love affairs. You understand? Yes, was the reply. Don't delude yourself with the thought that it was impossible for anyone to leave the room after Boyd was dead, went on the scientist, with the stubborn persistence of a child. Suppose this. I don't offer it as a solution. Suppose that Boyd had been engaged to be married, that someone else loved the girl he was to marry, that that someone else had hidden in his room until Cunningham went away, then... You see? By George! exclaimed the reporter. I never thought of that. But how did he get out? he added helplessly. If a man did do such a thing, he would have made every arrangement to leave that room in a manner calculated to puzzle anyone who came after. Mind, I don't say this is what happened at all. I merely suggest it as a possibility until I find more to work on. Hatch arose stretched his long legs and thanked the thinking machine as he pulled on his gloves. "'I'm sorry I could not have been of any more direct assistance,' said the scientist. "'When you do these things, I ask, come back to see me. I may be able to help you then. You see, I'm at a tremendous disadvantage in not having seen the place where Boyd was killed. There is one thing, though, which I particularly would like for you to find out for me now, tonight.' "'What is it?' asked Hatch. "'This tenement is an old building, I understand. I should like to know if the occupants have ever been annoyed by rats and mice, and if they are so annoyed now.' "'I don't quite see,' began the reporter, in surprise. "'Of course not,' said the thinking machine petulantly. "'But I should like to know just the same. I'll find out for you.' Hutchinson Hatch had still nearly an hour, and he drove to the tenement in South Boston to wake up its occupants and ask them, of all the silly questions in the world, "'Are you annoyed by mice?' He set his teeth grimly and smiled. When he reached the tenement, he went straight on to the second floor. The steps ended within a few feet of the door where the crime had been committed. Hatch looked at the door curiously. The police had gone. The room was silent again, hiding its own mystery. As he stood there, he heard something which startled him. It came from the room where Boyd had been found dead. There was no question of that. It was a faint whispering sound, as of wind rustling through dead leaves, or the silken swish of skirts, or the gasp of a dying man. With blood tingling, Hatch rushed to the door and threw it open. He stepped inside, lighting a match as he did so. The room was empty save for the poor furniture. No sign of a living thing. Straining his ears to catch every sound, 
Hatch stood still, peering this way and that until the match burned his fingers. Then he lighted another and still another. But there was no repetition of the noise. At last the ghostly quiet of the room, its gloom and thoughts of the mystery which its walls had witnessed began to press on his nerves. He laughed shortly. A very pronounced case of enlargement of the imagination, he said to himself, and he passed out. This thing is getting on my nerves. Then, feeling very foolish, he aroused several persons and inquired solicitously as to whether or not they had ever been troubled by mice or rats, and when this annoyance had stopped, if it had stopped. The consensus of opinion was that it was a very silly thing to ask, but that up to a fortnight ago the rodents had been very bad. Since then, no one had noticed particularly. These things, in so far as they related to rodents of any kind, were telephoned to the thinking machine. Uh-huh, he said over the phone. Thanks. Good night. From that point on, every effort of the police and the press was directed to finding Frank Cunningham, who was openly charged with the murder of Fred Boyd. His disappearance had been complete. If there had been any doubt whatsoever of his guilt, this was convincing to the police. It was Hatch's personal efforts that uncovered the fact that Cunningham had had a bank account of $287 in a small institution, that on the morning following the mysterious crime in the South Boston tenement, a check to cash had been presented for the full sum and that check had been honored. This began to look conclusive. It was also due to Hatch's personal efforts that the police learned Cunningham was to have married a week after his disappearance to Carolyn Pierce, a working girl at the West End. Then Hatch discovered that Carolyn Pierce had also disappeared, that she went away presumably to work on the morning after the murder of Boyd. Where had she gone? No one knew. Not even Miss Jared, the girl who, with her, occupied a suite of three rooms in the West End. Why had she gone? No one knew that. When had she gone? Still, no one knew. When would she return? Again, the same answer. To the reporter, there seemed only one plausible explanation. This was that Cunningham had drawn his money from the bank, which he had saved to make a little home for the girl he loved, and they had gone away together. In the natural course of his duty, Hatch printed this, and it came to the eyes of the police. Detective Mallory smiled. But the wedding ring in Boyd's room? There was no explanation of that. Boyd had had no love affair, so far as anyone knew. He had been a hard-working, steady-going man in his trade, electrician employed by a telephone company, and he and Cunningham had been friends since boyhood. All these things, while interesting in themselves, still threw no light on the actual crime. Who killed Boyd and why? How did the murderer get away? Hatch had put the question to himself time and again. There was no answer. Thus the intangible pall of mystery which lay over the happenings in the South Boston tenement was still impenetrable. On the second day after the crime, Hatch again consulted the thinking machine. 
The scientist listened patiently and carefully, but without any enthusiastic interest, to the reporter's recital of what he had discovered. "'Have you a man watching the place where the girl lives?' he asked. "'No,' Hatch replied. "'I think she's gone for good.' "'I don't think so,' said the thinking machine. "'I should send a man there to see if she returns.' "'If you think best,' said Hatch. "'But don't you think now this man Cunningham must have seen the criminal?' The scientist squinted at the reporter a long time, seemingly having heard nothing of the question. "'It looks that way to me,' Hatch went on, hesitatingly. "'But frankly, I can't imagine a way that he might have left that room after Boyd was dead.' Still, the scientist was silent and the reporter nervously fingered his hat. "'That information you gave me about the rats was very interesting,' said the thinking machine at last, irrelevantly. "'Perhaps, but I don't see how it applies.' "'Looking out the windows of the room where Boyd was found, what did you see?' the scientist interrupted. Hatch did not recall that he had ever looked out either of the windows. He had merely satisfied himself that neither had been used as a means of exit. Now he blushed guiltily. "'I'm afraid you haven't looked,' said the thinking machine testily. "'I thought probably you wouldn't have. Suppose we go to South Boston this afternoon and see that room.' "'If you only would,' said Hatch delightedly. Here was better luck than he dreamed of. "'If you only would,' he repeated. "'We'll go now,' said the thinking machine." He left the room and returned a moment later dressed for the street. The slender, bent figure and the great head seemed more grotesque than ever. "'Before we go,' he instructed, "'telephone to your office and have a reliable man sent to watch the girl's house. Tell him under no circumstances to try to enter or speak with anyone there until he hears from us.' The thinking machine stood waiting impatiently while Hatch did this. Then they took a cab to the tenement in South Boston. "'Dear me, what an old ramshackle affair it is!' commented the scientist as they climbed the stairs. The door of Boyd's room was not locked. The furniture and the personal effects of the man had been moved out, taken in charge by the medical examiner for possible use at an inquest. "'Just how was this room fastened when Boyd was found?' asked the scientist. Hatch showed him at the door and windows. The thinking machine was interested for a moment and then looked out the side window. Straight down fifteen feet was a wilderness of ash barrels and boxes and papers, a typical refuse heap of a cheap tenement. Then the thinking machine squinted out the back window. There he saw an open space, a rough baseball diamond, intersected at two places by the trampled-down rings of a circus. Perfunctorily, he peered into the closet, after which his eyes swept the room in one comprehensive squint. He noted the begrimed condition of the place, the drooping cornice, the smoky ceiling, the gaping cracks in the floor, the rat holes beside the radiator, the dirty gas pipe leading down to a single jet. He leaned against a wall and wrote for several minutes on a sheet of paper torn from his notebook. "'Have you an envelope?' he asked. Hatch produced one. The thinking machine put what he had written into the envelope, sealed it, and handed it back. 
There's something that may interest you sometime, he said. But don't open it until I give you permission to do so. Certainly not, said the reporter, puzzled but without question. But may I ask what it is? snapped the scientist. No, I will tell you when to open it. They descended the stairs together. Somewhere to a public telephone, were the thinking machine's instructions to the cabbie. At a nearby drugstore, he disappeared into a telephone booth and remained for five minutes. When he came out, he asked for the envelope he had given Hatch and in a little crabbed hand wrote on it, November 9-10. Keep it, he commanded, as he returned it to the reporter. Now we'll drive to the girl's place. When the cab reached the West End address, it was a little later than dusk. Carolyn Pierce and her girl chum occupied a front apartment on the ground floor. As the thinking machine and Hatch were about to enter the building, Tom Manning, another reporter on Hatch's paper, approached them. The girl hasn't returned, he reported. The other girl, Miss Jared, came back home from work just a few minutes ago. We'll see her, said the thinking machine. Then to Manning, at the end of two minutes, by your watch, after I enter this apartment, ring the bell several times. Don't be afraid. Ring it. If any person runs out, man or woman, hold him. Mr. Hatch, you go to the back entrance of this apartment. Stop any person, man or woman, coming from this suite. You believe, then? I'll give you two minutes to get to the back door, snapped the thinking machine. Hatch disappeared hurriedly, and for just two minutes, not a second more, the thinking machine waited. Then he rang the bell of the apartment. Miss Jared appeared at the door. He followed her into the suite. Manning at the front door waited, watch in hand. When the two minutes were up, he rang the bell time after time, long insistent rings. He could hear it tinkling furiously. Then he heard something else. It was the slamming of a door, a rush of feet, and a struggle. Then the thinking machine appeared before him. Come in, he said modestly. We have Cunningham inside. That's the end of part two of The Mystery of the Grip of Death by Jacques Futrell. Calm Mystery is a Murder Mystery Company production, part of American Immersion Theater. Scott Crampton, executive producer. Our editor is Audra Schildhouse. Join us soon for the conclusion in Part 3 when we find out if Professor Van Dusen, the thinking machine, can catch the killer, and how. In the meantime, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Calm Mystery on your favorite podcast app. And share us with a dear friend. Or enemy. Until next time, stay calm. Mystery is everywhere. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, Maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM. <laughs>